Hello, I'm Michael Weir, and I'm an author and someone who works at the intersection of faith and public life. I had the real pleasure of sitting down with John for a video called Don't Ultimatize the Penultimate. Uh, and I'm really excited to be here with you again to share one of my favorite videos uh, uh, that become new and, and John have produced uh, in uh, developing a love for truth. John, I think, really gets to the heart of the matter. You know, Dallas used to say, uh, uh, if you're gonna doubt your beliefs, you might as well doubt your doubts too. And Dallas really helped me understand that uh, doubt can be a terrible thing, but it doesn't make you a terrible person or a terrible Christian. We're kind of in this environment now where uh, we're either told that an honest Christian life is pervaded by doubt, uh, that you're not being honest if you're not constantly haunted by doubt about who God is, or that real Christians don't doubt at all. But life with Jesus is actually the only life available that, that doesn't require performance. It's an incredible thing. Life with Jesus is the only kind of life that doesn't require performance. And part of performance is um, not being willing to acknowledge and work through uh, what you think reality is. And part of letting go of performance is developing a love for truth and following that where it leads. And so uh, with that, I think John really offers us something really special uh, in this video. And I'm glad to be able to introduce it, uh, hopefully for the second time uh, to you. Uh, let's listen to John together. I want to start with two quotes from my wife just this morning. One of them, she said that it is impossible to pursue transformation without developing a love for truth. If I want to really change, it will be indispensable that I cultivate a love for truth because that's reality. Starting with the truth about me that I most want to not look at, which is what we're looking at a lot these days. So stay with me through these next couple of messages if you're part of this journey. The other quote is, as we were sitting at the breakfast table, I moved my foot rather suddenly and did not realize that her foot was already occupying the space that my foot was moving into. And so I said to her, I kicked you. I did not intend to. And she said, and yet you did. Just like that. And yet you did. And it struck me that this gets to the core of what we're talking about in these days. We do what we would not do, and we become that which we would not be. We don't want to. We don't want to do wrong. And yet we did. So that brings us to this third chapter of Dallas Willard's book, Renovation of the Heart. We're seeking renovation, but there's no way to do this without going through the path of sin something that we don't talk about in our day, words that have largely lost their power and meaning 
and we must reclaim, if not necessarily the words themselves, the thought and truth behind them. And Dallas writes in chapter 3 about radical evil in the humans, in the ruined soul, about being lost. And that too is kind of religious language. Somebody is lost. Jesus famously said, what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world and yet lose their soul? That's what we're going to explore today. With these sobering vistas of the human heart and soul before us, Dallas writes, we need now to rethink for our time what it means to be lost. For a ruined soul is a lost soul. What is a lost soul? Just somebody got us mad at? When is a person lost? Is anyone lost today? This is on page 55. Considerable confusion on this topic has resulted from trying to think of being lost in terms of its outcome. Theologically, that outcome is hell, a most uncomfortable notion. Certainly, if you are lost in any sense, there is little likelihood of you arriving where you want to be. But the condition of lostness is not the same as the outcome to which it leads. There is a condition of lostness, and then there is an outcome that that leads to. We are not lost because we're going to wind up in the wrong place. We're going to wind up in the wrong place because we are lost. And he goes on to say, very often, uh, we don't know that we're lost. Many a driver is lost long before he knows it, though rarely before his wife knows it. And of course, now... In our day, we're able to blame Siri. And then he goes on to say this. Lostness is a factual condition of the self, of the ruined soul. You either have it or not, just as you have or do not have a certain physical disease that can kill you. If you have the condition of lostness, you may not know it. Most likely you won't. It's inherently a condition of self-blindness. You need treatment nevertheless if you are not to be lost forever, and being informed of your condition and what to do about it can help you find relief. And that is what we're doing now. So I want to talk for a moment about what does it mean to be a lost soul? When Jesus said, uh, unless, uh, what does it profit a person if they gain the world and lose their soul? I used to think what he was saying was, uh, it doesn't do you any good to uh, make a lot of money and have a lot of sex and a lot of pleasure if you end up going to hell. That is not what he's saying. It's true, of course, but it's not what he was saying. So I want to come back to him for a moment to our little diagram, and uh, I, I think you might see a higher tech one on the screen. But lostness involves each of these dimensions of our personhood. So with our wills, our wills do not work right. Uh, we often fail to will what is good. I go through life and I could bless everybody that's a part of my life, but I don't think to do this. Or worse yet, I actually will that which is wrong. Or if I do will that which is good, I'm not uh, able to bring it about. And so uh, I will to be a generous person and yet I'm greedy all the time. And then that gets into our mind. There's a fascinating book I'm reading right now. It's called The Midnight Library about a woman who despairs of her life. She is a ruined soul and she wants to die, but she's stuck in between life and death. And she's given this very weighty book called The Book of Regrets. And she can hardly stand to read it. Millions of choices and so many of them led to regrets. But then there's not only the book of regrets, there's what we might call a book of forgets. 
And this is part of how the will and the mind interact with each other because the mind, if my mind, if my will is working right, it must choose the good and be powerful enough to execute it. But of course it's not. If my mind is working right for a flourishing mind, I must think thoughts that are true and desire things that are noble and good. But I don't. And then uh, my mind ends up forgetting that which I, my will does not want to remember. You might know there was a story several years ago when Billy Graham was a very old man. Uh, White House tapes got released and, and one of them recorded a conversation that he'd had with Richard Nixon where Nixon was very anti-Semitic. Richard Nixon was dead by the time the tapes were released. Billy Graham, of course, was horrified and he had no memory of that conversation because instead of confronting Nixon, saying, actually, Jesus was Jewish. These are people that I love. He enabled that conversation. He went right along with it. But none of us want to think of ourselves in that way. And so that was something that he had forgotten. Now, he responded in a wonderful way, met with a group of rabbis and repented. But for every uh, regret that I have, there will be thousands of forgets where my will has chosen something wrong, but my mind doesn't want to see myself that way. And so my mind gets messed up and I think all things, all kinds of things that are not true. And I live at the mercy of my desires so that uh, although I want to think of myself as somebody who is committed to the good, uh, I choose my desires all the time. And then my ego gets into everything. And then that gets into my body. And at the level of my body, now my body is meant to serve my will, but appetites, habits, eat willpower for breakfast. And we see this ultimately in addiction. Addiction is where the will is enslaved by the body. And we are all addicts in many, many ways. Uh, I, I might be an approval addict, and then it's just inside me. And then part of what happens is I learn to use my body to disguise what is going on in my mind and my will because I don't want you to know what I really think, what I really want, what I really choose. Dallas Willard used to say one of the reasons that we love little children is they have not learned to manage their faces. You look at their face and you know what's going on in their thoughts, in their feelings, in their choices. But when we grow up, we learn to use our bodies to deceive other people. And we call that growing up. And then that affects our social relationships. So now if my boss is, we talked recently about uh, that book, the no really bad person rule with a different word. I won't use it now. Let's say my boss is one of those really bad people. How do I respond? Well, I gossip with other coworkers about that because it makes me feel superior. I don't go to my boss and have courageous conversations about that. And then I rationalize, I can't do that. He or she has too much power. I could lose financially. So when I'm with my boss because I want their approval, then I will, I will kiss up. Again, we will develop all kinds of language for these behaviors that have sting to them. And then you put all of this together, a splintered will and a disordered, fractured, never satisfied mind um, fueled by desires that has ego all over it, and then a body with appetites where sin has got into habit, so I don't even see it. I don't even remember. And then relationships that are built on that kind of deception, and my ego is trying to use you. Now, this is the human condition, and that is a lost soul.
when, when someone has a lost soul, and we all do, we are all lost in that way, then you could gain the whole world, but it would never produce um, satisfaction, let alone a meaningful life. Just think about Jeffrey Epstein, Bernie Madoff. Those are the ones that publicly crash and burn. But of course, very often, we don't. Howard Hughes, John Belushi, Amy Winehouse, me, you. See, when Jesus makes that statement, what does it profit a person to gain the world but lose their soul, splintered, weakened, enslaved wills, tormented, anxious minds? Chick Semihai, the guy that did all that flow research, not a believer, but he said the number one learning from decades of research is that the human mind unaided tends towards chaos. It is swamped by anxiety and anger, and that is simply an empirical fact. We are, uh, we are living in the world of lost souls. So what do we do? Well, we begin by seeking to cultivate a love of truth. God, would you reveal the truth to me to the extent that I'm able to absorb it? And what's required in order to do that, first of all, is to live in the love of God. It's very interesting. In 1 John 3, those wonderful words, you might know them, where John says, Think about, behold, the manner of love God has for us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. What we shall be has not yet been revealed. But when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And then John goes right on to say, this is in verse 5 of 1 John 3, he appeared to take away our sins. Now, it doesn't say, as people often think, he appeared to take away the guilt of our sins or the punishment of our sins or the pain that we would go through if God was really mad at us for our sins. No, no, no. Uh, if, if, if Jesus tried to deliver me from external pain or punishment without healing me from my divided will and my messed up mind and my enslaved, habit-driven body and my root, it doesn't make any difference. You could take me to any pleasure palace in the world. I would be a miserable person. I need to be delivered, healed from my sins. And that's what Jesus does. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sin. Help me to love the truth. We are learning to place ourselves in his care so that we can be healed. This is a tough part of that journey, but it leads to something really, really good. I love you. Developing a love for truth so good. Thank you so much, Michael, for that pick. And little shout out to someone from our community, Liz Spencer. That was the one you were hoping that we would play. And so I'm glad that worked out for you. Um, this is our last week of favorites. And at the end of this week, we're gonna wrap things up by showing the episode that you voted for, whether in our Facebook group poll or by texting in or emailing. So thanks for participating and thanks for sharing this journey with us. You are so important to us and we're so grateful to be connected with you and this community. Many of you have been texting in over the last two weeks prayer requests or things that are um, in, going on in your life and it has been our great privilege to pray with you, to pray for you. And so if you want prayer, 
that's available to you, you can text us at 855-888-0444, or you can email us at becomenew.me at gmail.com. We would love to connect with you there. Now buckle up because this is our last week of favorites. And then after this series, we're going to launch into something new with John, which we'll tell you about soon. See you tomorrow. Thank you.